Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word, if you'll take it and turn to the book of Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for all the worship songs that have been sung. Lord, we thank you for your great son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this Thanksgiving season that we're in. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would indeed be thankful for all you've done for us. And Lord, as we uh, get into your word uh, and we get into passages about the cross, Lord, I pray that uh, our hearts would overflow with gratefulness uh, for the uh, agony that you suffered on our behalf. And so, Lord, I pray that we would read all of these scriptures uh, in light of the great things you've done for us. And so, Lord, I pray uh, right now that you would feed your people. And Lord, I pray that you would use me to do it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're at a passage of Scripture now. Uh, we've got two more chapters left of the book of Matthew. Uh, and then Matthew's over. And so uh, we're in Matthew 27. And uh, this just so happens to be, uh, I feel like Easter should be right around the corner, not Thanksgiving. Like if we've been following me through Matthew, uh, Jesus is going to the cross. And uh, for some reason, the cross and resurrection always means Easter time. But this should be all the time. But here we are, we're in Matthew 27, and just to to catch you up, all of the things that have been going on, Jesus has lived his whole life, he's been showing everyone that he is indeed the king of the Jews, he is everything that he was prophesied to be in the Old Testament, all of the beginning passages of Matthew where people were saying who Jesus was, he's shown that all of those things are true, and he has just finished up doing business with the Sadducees and Pharisees, he's put them uh, all to be quiet. And what has happened is those people have now set out to kill Jesus. And Judas, last week, just betrayed Jesus. So now we move in. Uh, They already have Jesus detained. uh, And now Judas is feeling remorse for the things that he's done. And so we jump right in to Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. And it says this. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. And so just to set the scene, this is a group of people who are all together conspiring about how to get rid of Jesus. And these are supposed to be all of the religious leaders. Like if you got into a pickle, you got into a jam and you needed help getting out. These are the people that should be able to help you the most. And what are these people doing? They're all conferring together against Jesus to put him to death. So they bound him, they led him away, they've delivered him to Pilate because these people want to put him to death, but they want their hands to be clean. They want somebody else to do their dirty work for them. And any rule of thumb, just as far as church and life goes, if you've got something on your mind, you've got something on your heart, and you don't have the gumption to do it yourself, it's probably a bad idea, and you shouldn't put it off on other people to do it for you because it's bad. And so now they're handing Jesus over to be killed, but they want Pilate to do it. Verse 3 says, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and he hanged himself. So Jesus, excuse me, Judas has seen that what's getting ready to happen to Jesus. Judas feels remorse. He returns the, the money to the people. And they say, these are supposed to be the religious leaders. These are supposed to be the ones that are helping you uh, live a holy, devout, and righteous life. They go, what's that to us? And then you're going to find that uh, in the next verse, 
the chief priests, this is verse 6, they take the money back. So they want the money back, but they don't care about his, his sin dilemma. But they take the money and they say, it's not lawful to put this money into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. And so they find themselves in another jam. These are supposed to be the religious leaders. And they can't take the money because it's blood money. But they could pay the money out as blood money. Interesting. And so just want you to see here, this is back up in verse 3, that when Judas does all of this, Judas feels remorse. And so I want you to see that, that Judas, he feels remorse over the things that he's done. And then he still goes out and he hangs himself. Uh, some of the uh, Gospels say that Judas repented. And that's not the same sort of repentance that Peter repented with. Peter repents unto Christ. Judas has remorse and Judas goes out and hangs himself. And so I don't want you to think that just because you hang yourself or just because you commit suicide, that this means that you're ultimately doomed unto death. But Judas is uh, legitimately a sinner. He sold out Christ and he feels remorse. And so I just want you to see here in the text that it's possible to be lost and feel remorse about sin. Right? It's possible to be sinful and feel remorse and be lost. And so Judas wants to give the money back, but they won't, but they, they won't take it legitimately, but they still take it anyways. And so now it says in verse seven that they conferred together with the money and bought the potter's field. This is verse seven is a burial place for strangers. Verse eight, for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of one whose had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And so what you see here in the text is that uh, you're going to see a lot of places where the text in your Bible looks different, like the font is different. In each of those places, uh, the writers of Scripture are showing you that this is an answered prophecy. Like this is prophecy that's being fulfilled. And so back in the prophet Jeremiah, uh, it's prophesied that there's going to be a field of blood bought. It's going to be the potter's field. And he walks you through showing you that Jesus and his life is fulfilling all of these prophets of the, all of these prophecies of the Old Testament and everything's laying out as planned. And so it looks like that this is a bad thing and it is, but this is exactly how God said that it was going to be laid out. Now, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. And so these people are coming together and they're bringing all of these false witnesses, if you remember, and they're bringing all of these accusations against Christ and Christ takes it all right. Doesn't argue back. I think that what Jesus is doing here is a great example of what the Proverbs say not to argue with a fool. Right? You ever, you ever seen TV in the middle of the day? Like one of the things I hate the most is to sit while someone's having surgery. Not because they're having surgery, but because you are forced to watch daytime television in the waiting room. And you watch all of these fools on TV. And they argue and they argue and they argue. And they both look like fools. And if you notice, if you watch, like I don't watch a lot of these courtroom shows, but from what I have seen in passing, if you go into court and you keep your mouth shut, generally the judge is going to realize that's the only person with sense in here. He's probably on the right side of whatever decision I'm making. You seen it? 
You all seen it? You guys are too good for Judge Judy and all this stuff I see. All right. Anyways, so Jesus doesn't answer any of their replies. Not because he doesn't have a good answer. Because Jesus knows that it's not going to do any good. There are times in our lives where fools bring accusations against us. And you are not going to change their mind with anything that you say. And sometimes you might as well not say anything. Now I'm going to tell you, when you do this, be prepared to make your spouse really mad. Right? Be prepared. Just, that's from experience. So Jesus doesn't answer these guys. He doesn't answer anything. And Jesus' silence, if you read the text, it says that when he did this, Pilate was amazed at Jesus. He was amazed that Jesus could keep his composure. And he's amazed that Jesus can be above reproach in the midst of all of these people slinging accusations at him. Then it says in verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. And so Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows that these people out of envy have handed Jesus over to be killed. And so Pilate probably is plotting in his mind how he can release Jesus to the people. But Pilate grossly underestimated how angry the people were or how angry the religious leaders were. And so Pilate gathers the people together. Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Verse 18, for he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus? who is called Christ. And they all said, crucify him. And he, this Pilate, said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. And I just want you to see here this crowd mentality. When you get mobs of people together and they're all emotional and excited about something, it's possible for them to be dead wrong and for there to be a couple people behind the scenes pulling strings, leading the people towards death, and they don't even realize it. This is the danger of the mob mentality. And I don't want to take away from the, the death of Christ here in this passage, but that mob mentality is the same thing that's happening to our nation today. Like there are things that are utterly wrong in our society. And you have mobs of people who are, who are saying something that is totally incorrect. And the crowds need to be silenced, but nobody's standing up and doing it. And so here you have a couple people, scribes and Pharisees. They want Jesus dead, and now they have moved and they have stirred the crowds so that now they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And then you move on to verse 24. And it says, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing... But rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And this is when it gets really bad. 
This is when the mob mentality is horrible. And all of the people said, they're caught up in emotion, His blood shall be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And so Pilate is no dummy, just so you know. He sees that this is going nowhere. He sees that the people are stirred into a frenzy. And when people are stirred up and in a frenzy, there's nothing that you can do with them. They're going to riot. And so he washes his hands. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the people say his blood shall be on us and our children. Can you imagine this group of people hollering about the death of Christ? That his death is to be on us and our children? You realize that the gravity of this, that they're about to put God to death and the people say, we will take full responsibility for the death of Christ. And even our children will be held accountable for this also. Then they release Barabbas. And then in verse 26, it says, after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And so this is the beginning. They've already been spitting on Jesus. They've already been insulting Jesus. They've already been beating Jesus. And now he's officially condemned. They're going to take him and put him to death. But first they scourge him. And they put him through a scourging. It's when they have a a leather whip. And they have pieces of metal or bones in the end of the multiple pieces of whip. And this is a type of punishment that is only reserved for murderers and traitors. Like... The Roman people took treason very seriously. And so now they're beating Jesus as if he's a traitor or a murderer. And then after beating him, they hand him over to be crucified. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered around the whole Roman cohort around him. This is roughly three to six hundred people. Verse 28. These are some of the things that Christ went through all leading up to the cross. This is all of the, the ridiculously difficult things that the Son of Man has to go through in order to get to the cross. And just keep in mind here that when they come after Jesus in the garden and Peter chops off a guy's ear, Jesus says, listen, gang, don't you realize that I could send legions of angels or my father could send legions of angels to get me and save me from this if it was his will? This same thing is true here. If Jesus wanted to get out of any piece of this, he could have. He could have called down angels. He could have done anything because he's God to get out of these things. But he walks through all of these things and he makes it through all of these things without sin so that when he gets to the cross and when he gives up his spirit, he is qualified to take your sin and to take my sin. And so if at any time when he's going through these things, if he sins, he's then incapable of bearing the sin of the world because he's not a qualified sacrifice. And so with that gravity, we read verse 28. And it says they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And so they take his clothes and they put on a robe. They're going to mock him because they're putting a scarlet on him, which would have been for royalty. Verse 29. And after twisting together a crown of thorns... They put it on his head. And so they've taken his clothes and they've given him play clothes, if you will. They've given him a scarlet robe. And he's the king, but he didn't have a crown. And so they take thorns. And these thorns, you've seen them before. They're not the little... Like if you're out hunting and you get in a briar patch here, you think our thorns are a big deal. Their thorns are a real big deal. You're talking inch and a half long thorns. And so they weave together a crown for him. But it's out of thorns. And they put it on his head. And they take a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
you ever been right about something? Like, you ever been right about something huge? Like, that had giant ramifications? And everybody around you thought that you were crazy and they began to mock you? Ever been there? You ever seen it happen before? You ever seen somebody in the limelight that's exactly right and the rest of the world mocks them for being wrong? And they treat them poorly. This is a difficult thing to do to go through a mocking. You probably may have to think back to high school, middle school, elementary school. Do you remember how bad you used to mock people? Some of y'all are guilty because you're laughing. I didn't think it would be you, Dr. Tarkington. (laughs) But we mocked people or we saw people get mocked. It's bad. And your heart goes out to them. And this is Christ. This is what God goes through for us. And so they take his clothes. They give him a scarlet robe. They put together a crown of thorns. They put a reed in his hand as, a, as like a ruling staff. And then they mock him. And they bow down and they mock him worshiping, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And so it's the, they're saying the right thing, but they're doing it with a snarky attitude. Nothing gets under my skin more than seeing kids mock other kids with a snarky attitude, especially when they're saying the right thing. And then it goes even further in verse 30. They spat on him. And then they take his reed. And this spitting on is a giant deal in Jewish culture. You spit on someone in a Jewish culture and it's, it's bad. It's a huge insult to their, to their pride and to who they are. And so they spit on him. Then they take the reed from him. They take his ruling stick from him. And verse 30 says they began to beat him on the head. And so can you imagine somebody who's already been scourged? Somebody who you've put the clothes on you want to put on. You've put a crown of thorns on his head. You've given him a reed. You're mocking him. You're spitting on him. And then you take his stick from him and you begin to hit him on the head with it. Like, do you know if we were to bring somebody in and we were to do that to them down front, how embarrassing that would be? Like to take their own stick from them and just hit them on the head with it? You've all seen the, the teacher maybe on TV and the, the, the mean teacher who makes you put on a dunce cap or something, sit in the corner, and then they hit you with the stick because you're so foolish or you're so dumb. It's the same thing they're doing to Jesus. And then it says that they put, after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to be crucified. And so we're not told how long this mocking session takes, but at the end of it, they take their robe back. They take their all of these things back. And now it's time to lead Jesus away to crucify him. But now Jesus is in such bad shape. Like it's easy to read these few sentences and think that, okay, maybe that wasn't but so bad. But then you get to verse 32 and it says, As they were coming out, they found a man of Serene named Simon who they pressed into service to bear his cross. And so this tells you, by the end of verse 32, Jesus is in such bad shape that he can't even get his own cross to the hill where they're going to kill him. And so they draft this innocent bystander to come carry Jesus' cross for him. And so get this. Jesus is a carpenter's son. Jesus is a guy. And now this God-man is so weak that he can't even carry the piece of lumber up the hill to be crucified with it. They've beat him and tortured him so bad that he can't do that. And so, you know, people always come up with these crazy questions. Is there anything that God can't do? And then they inevitably say something dumb like, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? That's a dumb question. But anyways, is there anything that God can't do? And the answer is yes. At the end of the God-man's life, he couldn't get his cross to the top of the hill because he was in such bad shape. Because of his 
humanity that he had taken on. He, that, that's something that he couldn't do. And so they get somebody to do it for him. And now in verse 33, it says, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. And so they give him wine, and it's mixed with gall. This would have been something that would have uh, messed up his senses. He wouldn't have been all about himself. Uh, if you've seen somebody that is given some sort of medicine that really messes with him and makes him loopy, Jesus doesn't want it. He, he doesn't want to go in with his facilities limited when he's about to endure the sin of the world. So he wants to have his wits about him, and so he rejects it. And when they had crucified him, verse 35, now they've crucified him, and they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And so they've, they've walked him up to the top of the hill. They've nailed him to the cross. They nail his hands and feet to the cross. You know the, 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 you know the way that they crucify people. So now they've got him up there, and he's crucified. And so now what you're going to do is they're going to sit down, and they're going to wait for him to die. And this event normally takes days to die because normally when you're crucified, you asphyxiate, right? You, you get to where you can't breathe. So your arms are out and you have to pull yourself up so that the weight of your chest isn't on your lungs anymore so you can get a breath. And so what normally happens is that someone suffocates on the cross. That's why usually at the end of a crucifixion, they come and they break the individual's legs so they can't push themselves up anymore and breathe. They don't do that to Jesus. Because prophecy needed to be fulfilled that they didn't break any of his bones. And so now the guards have sat down and they're cast in lots to divide up his garments. Verse 36, they sit down, they begin to keep watch over him. And above his head, verse 37, they put up a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so they put this sign above his head. And the sign says the exact same thing. That the Roman soldiers were saying when they were mocking him. Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. And it's as if... There's nothing funny about Jesus going to the cross. But when you look at this, you can tell that the things these people are saying are exactly right. But they just don't see it. And so, when these people stand before God. And God puts in the heavenly VCR this tape. And he shows them that they were right all along. They just missed it. Like all the things that they were saying, mocking Jesus, were exactly right, and they made fun of it. It's going to be incredibly condemning for them. And now you have the world's against Jesus, verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And so here's Jesus who's done nothing wrong, doesn't deserve death. Now he's being crucified, which was a death that was only deserved for, like we said, murderers and traitors. And now he's in between two murderers. And those passing by, verse 39, were hurling abuse at him and wagging their heads. And so it's not just enough that they're going to kill him and that they're going to dishonor him amongst themselves. But now he's hanging up there and the world is walking by. And as people walk by, they're hurling abuse at him and wagging their heads. And this wagging their head would be just a very distasteful, uh, like what they're seeing is atrocious. And they just can't believe it. And they're saying things. Verse 40. And saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And so all of these people are walking by. And listen, they remember the things that Jesus has said. 
And they're playing the things that Jesus has said against him. And so, again, they're saying all of the right things. Right? Jesus is going to die in just a matter of a few hours. And three days later, he's going to raise from the dead. And they're saying, you who are going to rebuild the temple in three days, save yourself. If you're so big and bad, come down from there. And I can't imagine the mental stress that Christ is going through. Knowing that in three days, he's going to raise from the dead to save them. But they're mocking him, and he's getting ready to do the very things that they're talking about. Just the, the ridiculous amount of stress that Jesus must have been over under this mocking and everything else. And so then it goes on in verse 41. And so the Romans, the guards are mocking Jesus. All the passerbyers are mocking Jesus. And then it says in verse 41, In the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying. And so now you have the chief priests with the scribes and elders. Now they're mocking him. These people that can't answer any question that Jesus has. Every time Jesus asked them a question, they're just utterly silent. They have nothing to say. Now these people who didn't have anything to do with Jesus are standing before him. And they've got him on the cross where they want him. And now they're mocking him. And so these are the people who should have been the religious leaders. These are the people who should have been going to bat for Jesus. And now they're mocking Jesus as well. And this is what they're saying. Verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come now, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And listen to this. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And so Jesus right now, for all practical purposes, is all alone and he's about to bear the sin of the world and he's getting mocked and persecuted for it and the reason that he's getting mocked and persecuted and the whole reason that he's on the cross is because it was God's will for all of those things to happen and Jesus prayed earlier he said Lord if it be your will let this cup pass from me but it wasn't. It wasn't the will of the Father to let Jesus get out of any of these things. I'm not saying that any of these things are good. But what I'm saying is, this was Christ's cup from the Father that he had to drink. And so what I want you to reflect on, just for a little while, and for the rest of this week maybe, is that just because bad things are happening in your life, just because it seems like at some points the world is falling apart around you and you're going through bad things for the sake of Christ, maybe. Don't think that that might not be God's will for your life, because it very well may be. That may be the cup that he's given you to drink, because he wants something bigger out of your life than what you're going through right then. And that may be something that you have to drink to get where he wants you to get. Because if Christ doesn't go through all of these things, he's not able to die on the cross for your sins. And there may be some things that you and I have to walk through in life so that we can be where we need to be when God needs us to be there, maybe for someone else. So we go on, and everyone's against Jesus. 
The Romans are against Jesus. The guards are against Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, all of the people are against Jesus. And if you think there'd be somebody who's with Jesus, it'd be the two people that are getting killed on his left and right. And they muster up enough energy to mock Jesus also. Now you get to verse 45 and it says, Now from the sixth hour, that's noon. So now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And so that's from noon to three o'clock. About the ninth hour, so it's dark. Darkness has fallen on the land. Verse 46 says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying that Hebrew phrase, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so I've told you before that sometimes uh, when you quote Scripture in Jesus' day, you don't spout off Joel 3.27, right? Because there's no chapters and verses. And so what they do is they usually, he's quoting a psalm here, and so he quotes the first sentence of the psalm. That's how they refu- That's how they referred to different chapters or sections of a book. And so Jesus, in verse 46, is, is actually quoting a psalm, and the people mistake what he's saying, verse 47. And some of those who were there standing by, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately... One of them ran, and so they would have thought that he was calling for Elijah, probably because of the way the sentence starts out with uh, Eli, Eli, which if you can't hear him very well, could sound like he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, verse 48, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. So he comes and he gives Jesus a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then in verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And so Jesus is, he dies on the cross, but Jesus gives up his spirit and his spirit is not taken from him because he's going to go on to say that no man takes my life, but I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can pick it back up again. And so Jesus yields up his spirit. And then in verse 51, this is huge. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so there's a series of things that take place right after Jesus yields up his spirit. Right after God dies, a lot of things in the world fall apart. And so the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. This would have been a massively thick veil that was separating the most holy place from the holy of holies. Okay, and so when you are walking by the temple, you may have been able to see in the temple. But as you walked by, you couldn't see past the curtain. Right? So you can't see everything that the temple has to offer. And I've pointed you back a couple times before to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says that when all of the people were around the temple, like the Holy Spirit was working in the lives of the people, and when they would see the temple and all of the things going on, that their spirit convicted them that there's a way for them to get in the temple. Like there's a way for them to enter that most holy place, but it hasn't been known yet. And so as you're looking and you're looking at the temple... Your spirit says, there's, there's, there's got to be a way for me to get in there. But only one time each year during the Day of Atonement can the high priest go in and enter behind the veil and make atonement for the people. But now when Jesus yields up his spirit, the veil in the temple tears from top to bottom, symbolizing that now there's a way for you to get into the most holy place, and it's through Christ. And so this is part of him doing away with the Old Covenant. Now, one of the biggest features of the Old Covenant has just been ruined, and it's been ruined by God. Like, this veil didn't tear from bottom to top, but this thing tore from top to bottom because God tore it. And you go on to verse, the middle of verse 51, and it says that the veil tears and tore in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And so there's a big earthquake that happens now also. 
And while all of this stuff has happened, it's important for you to know that the Romans are the ones killing Jesus, right? They take him up, they kill him. There's scribes and Pharisees there. There's a bunch of Jewish people there. But most of the Jewish people aren't at the crucifixion of Christ, probably. They're going to be at the temple celebrating the Passover, Okay, And it said at this day that there were so many people, at, at this day and age rather, that there's so many people coming to the tabernacle, to, or to the temple rather, to do these sacrifices and to do these feasts, that they actually had two different days that they did it because there were so many people. And so there's so many people that the temple is full, everything around it is full, they've got to do it in two different waves. They're going to have a morning service and an evening service just to accommodate all the people, but it's different days. And so there are tons of people around the temple now. And they all would have seen and they all would have known that this veil tears. And when they got chatting, they would have all put together that when Jesus lifts up his spirit, that's when it happened. And then the earth shook and the rocks were split and there's an earthquake. And if you look back and you kind of trace when God shakes the earth, it's normally when God is speaking something or saying something very great or he's about to rain down havoc on the people. Look back to the book of Exodus when Moses goes up on the mountain and God talks to the people, the earth shakes, and God's saying something. And then it says in verse 52, and this is, this is strange in verse 52, right? Like I read this and I don't get it. I have a lot of questions. It's in here, and I believe it, but what this looked like, I have no idea. And when you read history books, this is this is the main section in Scripture where I go, certainly somebody would have wrote something about this somewhere. And it says, after the earth shook, the rocks split, verse 52, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And so dead people get out of graves and coming up out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And so if you look at verse 53, right, if, look at 52 and 53, you see that there's uh, some commas, some semicolons and whatnot. You see the punctuation. Well, when this is written in the original Greek, most of the New Testament books are written straight through. Right? They just start writing and they don't stop and they don't slow down. And so if you were to pick up uh, an original manuscript, it would be on a scroll and it would look like the person forgot to put in spaces. It would look like they forgot to hit the tab key on the keyboard to indent paragraphs. It's just written straight through. And so brilliant people have gone through and they've put in some punctuation and they've put in some of the other things they have. And one, some of the commentators believe in this verse 52 and 53. It says the tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. And some of them believe that there should be a period right there in the middle of verse 53 that they raised and they came out of the tombs. And then they think that this should be a new sentence after his resurrection They entered the holy city and appeared to many. And the reason that they say that is because the scriptures say uh, several times that Christ is the firstborn among the dead. Like we believe that Christ is the first person to raise with a glorified body. And so if these people, nobody knows how they were raised. Are they just dead people like Lazarus who came back to life? Or were they raised with glorified bodies? If they're raised with glorified bodies, they've got to be done. That has to be done so after Christ raises with a glorified body. And so there's some, there's some question here as to how and why, but it doesn't change that this is what happened. Like the timing, three days, is, is a bit irrelevant. What's going on here is that the veil's torn, the earth and rocks are split, tombs are open, dead people come back to life. And then in verse 54, 
go, well, why did all this stuff happen? Verse 54 says, Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so why do all those things happen? Those things always happen to point people to Christ. Whenever anything crazy is going on, maybe you think in your life and you go, God, why is this happening? Generally speaking, those things are happening as an avenue for you to point people to Christ. And so this man sees all of these things and he says, wow, truly this man was the son of God. Verse 55, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. And among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and mother and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So interestingly enough, women, I want you to see this. Oftentimes, it's the women who are faithful and who are there through the thick and the thin. I'm going to give you credit where credit is due. Because you don't see that Peter's there ministering. You don't see that these boys were there ministering. What you see is that their mamas were there and they were ministering. Now, the men are going to come back a little bit later. But it seems that right now they're all locked themselves in an upper room. Now it says in verse 57... When it was evening, there came a rich man from Aramathan named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. And so these women are sticking by Jesus, even though he's dead. They're making sure that that Jesus is taken care of. And so here's this guy named Joseph. He asked for the body. Joseph is a rich man. He has a tomb that's been cut out in the rock. And if you go to Israel and you look at where they say this tomb is, you can tell that Joseph was probably a short guy. And the reason they can tell this is because the way the rock is carved out. And so if you were looking at this area here, there's a giant hill, not like the hill you see in your Sunday school literature, right? There's not this random hill in the countryside, and there's a giant round uh, comet-looking ball in front of the grave. It's not like that, right? There's a, there's a rock face, and there's a door cut out of the rock face, and it opens up into a room about the size of our choir loft, and off in the corner, there's like a bed made of rock, and they've hewn out a small section where a short guy would be buried. And it seems that Jesus was a couple inches taller than Joseph because somebody very quickly extended that grave. You can go and look at it if you go to Israel today. And so Joseph takes Jesus, puts him in his own tomb, and now he's going to put a stone in front of the entranceway. And so when you look at pictures of um, what they say is where Jesus is buried, you've got a small door cut out in some rock. But, and it's not like a cave like a bear would live in. And like I said, it's not like a big where they roll this big stone ball and nobody could ever move the stone ball. You've heard people say, if you've said this, forgive me, um, but that the guards and Jesus's followers never could have moved the stone away because it was too heavy. Like, right, if nobody can move it away, how in the world did they move it there? Like, that's a pretty valid question, right? So they rolled it from wherever it was to here, but now it's so heavy, nobody can move it. Like, where they kill all the strong men, so they can't move it. So what they've done is they have probably about a seven or eight foot rock that's in a circle, but it's about that wide. 
And so they take this rock and they put it off to the side of the door, but they have a like an inclined plane. And so the rock is sitting here and it's got a jam at the bottom of it so the rock doesn't fall down. And so they put Jesus in the tomb, move the rock, and the rock rolls down into place to cover the door. All right, you got a good stage set for how Jesus is, is died or for how Jesus is buried. This all comes into play for verse 62 and following. Now on the next day, verse 62, after the preparation... The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. And so all of the chief priests and the Pharisees, they go back to Pilate and they go, Wait a minute. All these crazy things have happened. Earthquakes. People risen from the dead. The the veil tears. They go to Pilate and they go, Hey, Pilate, that guy said when he died... He was going to raise from the dead three days later. Pilate, therefore, gave orders, verse 64, for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception may be worse than the worst. Maybe maybe worse than the first. And so I thought back. When I read this, I was like, man, those clowns killed Jesus. And they know who he was. Like, they knew who Jesus was when they killed him. And now they're afraid that he's going to continue to be right. And he's going to continue to be God, even though he's dead. And so what they do is they try to put up every man-made way to keep God from being God. And there's a funny thing. If you were to go to Israel, they have a a wall around the whole city. Or there used to be a wall around the whole city. And if you read in the Old Testament, they're always talking about the eastern gate and the western gate. And they're talking about all these things that don't make sense to us. But the scriptures are very clear that when Jesus comes back again, he's going to come. He's going to come from the east. And so do you know what the Jews who hate Jesus have done? Like, they, 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 they cinder blocked the gate. Like they blocked it off and then they took right outside the gate, right up against the gate, they put a cemetery up. Because they said whoever the Messiah is can't walk through a cemetery because then he'll be unclean. And so what they did is they block off the gate, they plant a cemetery, and so they plant a cemetery. They, they put people in the ground and we call it a cemetery so that Jesus can't be who he said he was. Because we've prevented him from doing what he said. All because they don't want their system to fall apart. And I thought back to Matthew chapter 21 about the parable of the man who plants a vineyard. And then when he goes back to collect his rent, that they kill the people that come back to collect the rent. And they kill more people who come back to collect the rent. And then the man sends his son and they kill his son also. And at the end of the parable, Jesus tells him that they knew he was the son and they killed him anyways because they didn't respect him. And he says, you're those people. And so these same people, it just goes to show you again that they know Jesus is who he said he was, but they're trying to prevent him from being God so that people don't follow him instead of following them. Getting that? These people are so consumed with themselves and the things that they're doing, they don't want people to follow God. Now, in verse 65, it says, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And so this doesn't mean that they got a mason and went out and they sealed it off with concrete and cement, right? They didn't back an Argos truck up to it and just dump yards of cement at the tomb. They put a seal on it. And so the emperor or Pilate has a seal. And when he seals something with it, only someone who is the intended recipient is allowed to open it or you die. 
Like, that's why when you get to the book of Revelation, and there's an angel that has a scroll, that has a seal, that's why they're crying out in heaven, who can open this seal? Who can open this scroll? And you think, no big deal, give it to me. I got a pocket knife. I'll open that scroll. That's not the deal. The deal is you got to have someone of equal weight or gravity that can open the seal. It's finding someone worthy who won't be killed for opening the scroll. And the same thing happens here. And so they, or Pilate allows them to put a seal on it so that nobody other than Pilate or whoever he sets to open it can open it. And so now they have locked this thing up tight. And the sermon ends here with Jesus in the ground. And this could be, could end as a very sad sermon. But before we finish, I want to flip over to Philippians. Uh, and I'm in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, and I'm going to spend a second here before we're done. And so you look at all of the things that Christ did. And what I want you to take away from this is that Christ did all of these things for you and I. Like, he doesn't just mindlessly go to the cross because that's what he's supposed to do. He does this so that he can seal salvation for all of us. So that anything that you've ever done, any sin in your life, if you'll repent of it and trust in Christ, he went to the cross and paid for all of it while he was on the cross so that you don't have to. He died the death that we all deserved so that we don't have to. And so listen to this. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And it says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus humbles himself, and he walks through everything we just talked about because it was the will of God, and that's what he had to walk through so that God could glorify him and raise him up above every other name on heaven and earth. And so, brothers and sisters, what I encourage you and I to do during this Thanksgiving season, humble ourselves, serve others, so that at the proper time, God can raise us up and exalt us also. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that in his name there is eternal life. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they trust you to forgive them of their sins and they trust in your resurrection so that they can have eternal life. And Father, I pray that you would set souls free who may be in bondage to sin. Father, I pray that you would help us each to take a page from this book and apply it to our life. Lord, I pray that we would be Christians who humble ourselves. And I pray that we would be Christians who willingly drink the cup that you've poured out for us so that at the proper time you can exalt us and raise us up with your son. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who follow you regardless of the cost. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who out of the joy set before us obey your commands. Lord, help us never to follow you out of guilt. Help us never to follow you out of a sense of obligation or duty, but help us to serve you out of gratefulness of the things that you did for us. First in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
If you would stand with us for a hymn of invitation. Next week, uh, next week, uh, I'm going to preach what's kind of turned into an annual Thanksgiving uh, sermon. Uh, this week it's going to be, uh, this year it's going to be before Thanksgiving though, not after Thanksgiving. And so uh, there's a lot of things that uh, I have seen uh, around our church over the last year that I want to bring up to you uh, because I'm overjoyed at a lot of the things that I've seen in and around. And so uh, you need to to come and hear hopefully, so that you can be encouraged at the great things that are going on around us. Because I tell you all the time, I wish you guys got to see some of the things that I get to see that I'm not supposed to tell you about. I'm going to tell you about some of them next week, though. And so I'm not going to name any names, though, I promise. I won't, uh, I won't let, your, let your secret out all the way. But uh, I want to also give you a, um, the names who have been chosen for deacons. And this is in uh, random order. Jack Williford, Jack Powell, and Jonathan Huddleston. And so for the next three years, these guys are on the hook uh, to serve faithfully as deacons. And uh, we thank you, men. And I'm going to close us in prayer and get uh, Randy. Would you close us in prayer?